Hello and welcome to a new Rethink Energy podcast with me, Peter White, our intrepid team of Harry Morgan, uh, Andrew Swantanar and Simon Thompson. Uh, what do we think of the issue? I like the idea that humble little Sweden will, you know, get hydrogen usage into steel uh, by forming a little club. That's how they always operate. They, they get four or five companies that are vaguely multinational and all work together and, and that's how they stay in stay in the lead the the hybrid project's been running for a while i think is is, is that right harry yeah no it's been running since 2016 uh, it's okay. a really good project actually um i think the way they're trying to do it in sort of one big leap and do it on a small scale is much more effective than trying to do it one bit at a time um i think there's the german company yeah, yeah. Group, mm. who do pretty much the same thing but it's they're doing it on a much more sort of incremental basis so they're doing sort of the um either sort of like the pellets first and then moving on to sort um things like the blast furnace so um it's, it's really interesting to see the two approaches but they're definitely the two companies that are in the lead with it at the moment are the americans interested in this or they're just they're not bothering it seems like they're not bo- bothering um at the moment there's very few projects um underway in terms of properly decarbonizing steel i think the big thing that people are focusing on at the moment is carbon capture um which well, we could talk about for ages but um essentially uh, the hybrid consortium have decided not to pursue carbon capture they basically identified that it would only reduce 50 percent of the emissions from steel uh, and that the technology today is only on five percent whereas if you do this sort of hydrogen approach and go sort of properly end to end you can actually reduce sort of 95 percent of the emissions from steel maybe even more um it was really interesting this week though to see um literally as we click send on, on our publication um, I saw an article pop up from Recharge that said that the IEA was saying that hydrogen would only be able to decarbonise 10% of steel. So it's one of those classic things where it's no, it will definitely be another case of the IEA massively underestimating clean technology. Um, and if you if you looked at their forecast probably 10 years ago, they'd probably said hydrogen would have had nothing to do with decarbonising steel. So in 20 years' time, when we're 10 years away from 2050, it'll probably be saying hydrogen can de- decarbonise 80% of steel and by the time it's actually there it will be 100%. So um, I know that's pretty similar to how you feel about um, Wood McKenzie this week, Peter, as well. <laughs> LNG. I yeah. just get so frustrated about Wood McKenzie. I mean, that the, so we, we partnered with um, Meta Group for a while and they brought a lot of their habits from Gartner Group and Gartner Group is now a $3 billion concern and growing. And and it was really hammered into us that, that why they had a research meeting every week, which was to take all the disparate views on a subject and come out with a single opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the whole point of the research meeting was you convince the boss which one of you's right. And then once he's convinced, he actually used to dictate into a dictaphone um, the story that would go out that week and and it was typed up when it had gone by within an hour and back when the technology wasn't really there but but there, it was just this insistence that we can't give our customers two separate opinions and uh Wim mckenzie seems to be happy for one division to have one opinion and one division to have another and a third to have another and and that's because you know if you're talking to the old companies they want to hear one thing if you're talking to the renewables, they want to hear another. If you're talking to a utility, they want to hear something else. But you can't just tell people what they want. What, what's wrong with the truth? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. The thing that I'm sort of finding at the moment is, with, especially these organisations, it seems to be that they're they're being run by people that 
have spent their lives learning about oil, familiarising themselves with the markets, and then suddenly being told that what you've done for the past 20 years is going to be irrelevant in 20 years' time is making is, is off-putting them from any sort of real analysis, um, and they're being very reluctant to actually say anything progressive. So we grew up through the IT era, and and in the IT era, they took a guy who was who'd been in charge of Coca-Cola and put him in charge of Apple. That was their logic. Was well, hold on, you don't want someone who's got his head in the code. You want someone who can think about the marketplace in its entirety and and doesn't feel like he's got to protect anything in it. And a lovely expression that came up in that era, which is about eat your own children. You know, if you've got a pet project that's making you lots of money, if someone else is going to compete with it in a different way and undermine it, it needs to be you. You need to do it first, even though it's going to undermine your own revenues. Well, you can't imagine anyone in oil undermining oil revenues. And yet, so you need CEOs joining these oil companies who are not brought up in oil. So, Peter, just to come back to your idea about the forecast companies, why is it necessary to have one single line? Why can't you have two two lines? Well, two truths, two, two versions truths. of the truth. Oh, uh. You can tell oil companies what they need to do. You can give them advice. Um, and their advice might be different from the advice you give to a utility. That's true. But it comes from the same baseline of, well, how fast do we think things are happening? And what you've got is this IEA mentality, um, which everyone in the marketplace knows. I mean, they're a, ru- a running joke that the IEA was set up around the 1974 oil crisis to defend oil principles. So the whole point about it is it's got a mission. International energy um, is not not a, an expression that you immediately associate with um, oil protectionist society. But if, if it was called the oil protectionist society, th- then you would know that their main mission is to consider oil first. And that's how we can't behave as advisors. We have to you know, model based on what's happening. Yeah, so that's why I get annoyed, because it's happened not once, not twice, but three times on three different subjects, and they're always on the conservative side. So as carbon taxes come in, then there's a reason, there's a specific reason to decarbonise. Um, if you're a steel maker, cement maker, whatever whatever you're doing, if, you're, if you produce oil. Um, and as that bites more, there's a greater reason to decarbonise. So... Uh, as you're fond of pointing out, Harry, some people will adopt this approach of incremental improvements. Let's take 10, 20 percent off. Yeah, your carbon tax comes down, but it doesn't go away. If you um, if you actually grasp the nettle and make the change, and actually just put a team together and say, let's think about how we could completely decarbonise. Quite soon they come up with, you know, it takes them time to sift all the ideas in the market. They come up with a, a plan and it turns out the plan always costs less than you think. But if you're if you're sitting there saying, oh, well, we can do carbon capture, we can do a bit more next year and a bit more next year, a bit more next year. And by 2030, by 2040, we could have got rid of 30 percent of the carbon. All you've done is is put off that day when you've got a grasp for now. I think you've got also this sort of incremental approach. It What it has to do is it has to outpace the rate at which carbon price is increasing. And the amount of carbon allowance in the EUTS, for example, um, is falling around sort of 2 to 3% a year. So if you can't achieve incremental efficiency gains of more than that, then it's going to start costing more and more anyway. And in a market, in sort of a technological market where 
we pretty much plateaued in terms of things like steel production efficiency, airplane efficiency. Achieving 2% is a massive R&D effort, um, and you can't just expect that on sort of annual basis. Um, so yeah, it does have to be a all-in-one approach where suddenly you've got 100% in one go, and maybe that's sort of five years further down the line. If you try to, to save yourself 5 or 6% now, um, you find that's plant, and that plant's been stalled, and that plant, you expect the lifetime of that plant to be 25 years. If you then have to replace it in five years with a more efficient version, that's two times plant, mm. <laughs> and then three times. It's, it's just not, not economical. It can't be done. So, Andres, um, so in in uh, in the world of solar, what's been going on this week? Well, there was yet another um, massive solar corporate PPA project, so a 1.2 gigawatt portfolio, actually with some wind in there. And this time it was it was the same developer as last week with the 3.3 gigawatts of total. So I just thought let's let's look at what's going on in in Spain because there's so many of these. Um, massive scale developments with a corporate PPA. And I, I think it was yeah. 4.4 gigawatts last year that yeah. were signed in, in corporate PPAs. And I think that's half of the total amount in, in the USA so far. So it's like Spain is a unique place in Europe for that. It's got mm. the land availability, the sun, that mm-hmm. a place like uh, Germany doesn't. It's got a very large parts of the country which are p- purely rural. And they are kind of falling into decay because the, nobody wants to live on a farm hand's wages. So you can make more money out of out of solar than you can out of growing anything there. Um, you've got the desertification coming from the mm. south as climate moves north. And that's another situation where it should be able to export excess energy mm. um, to other countries. Uh, it should, certainly should be able to decarbonize really fast. So if Spain has all this solar, does that mean there would be some kind of industrial shift like within Europe, maybe to some extent towards Spain? Or will it just be easy to export it to France and Germany and Italy, North Italy? I think the distances involved are not um, massive. When you consider how far um, um, HVDC connections are going in China, um, from Spain you can go almost anywhere. Uh, in Europe, couldn't you? So, so without losing too much energy. Yeah, once you've got countries like Spain to a point of renewables where they're actually able to export renewable energy rather than using it to service themselves, you'll really start to see that electricity flow north. Um, and we will start to see this idea of maybe a European supergrid coming into play. I mean, we'll see, it's the, it's the same this week with um, what the UK have said about offshore wind and saying they're going to try and power all of their homes by 2030. Once the UK reaches sort of above its own requirements for um, renewable electricity, then we'll start seeing a lot of offshore wind flowing down from sort of the northern regions during the winter and then up from places like Spain and Portugal during the summer. But obviously we'll have to start seeing sort of the infrastructure around that developing in sort of around 2030. I just think that super good idea is a fantastic idea wherever you are. You know, if, if the more reach you can have with it, it's certainly over a, a, a distance of, of one or two thousand kilometers. Um, you have more entrepreneurial activity can then target. I just need to get my stuff onto the grid. You, you still lose. It, you know, people won't buy it from a long way away because it will go up in price because you'll deliver a lower amount there. But but people in neighbouring countries will just be able to annex it and just say, I'll have that. In terms of um, capital expenditure, it just makes so much sense. I mean, if you're betting money, if you've got to build up your 
capacity to deal with seasonal variation um, or building up the storage around that, that's going to be a massive amount of capex when you could just build one long H, um, HVDC cable to sort of link in all of these separate countries. Another thing we mentioned in this issue a couple of times was uh, using battery um, battery installations just to reduce how much of this cabling you have to build. So if a, if a transmission line is congested and has too much trying to go through it, you can just store some of it. Uh, the French are doing that. I mentioned it in my article on battery storage in China as well. Um, I think that's all we've got time for this week. Um, we'll follow these stories as we go and we'll be back with you again next week. Thank you.